Hello, and welcome to the sixth edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I'm your host, ExoAcadamian. Here on the Point of Convergence podcast, we have been discussing how various categories of what's often referred to as high strangeness seem to overlap. Many of the same people who experience something like, say, precognition, that is, knowing something ahead of time, have also seen a UFO in the sky or have sensed mysterious presences nearby, apparently just beyond perception of our visual field. Remote viewing, known more commonly as clairvoyance, is another of these categories. And like other contact modalities we've discussed, entangled consciousness seems to be at the root of the experience. One aspect that sets remote viewing apart from some of these other phenomena, however, is the fact that it has been studied tested, and proven under rigorous laboratory conditions. While some may dismiss some of the other categories of high strangeness as unverifiable, from an objective point of view, remote viewing stands up to that test and passes it with flying colors. Now, as I mentioned earlier, remote viewing was formerly known more commonly as clairvoyance, Remote viewing itself is a specific kind of demonstrating clairvoyance and testing it. Now, clairvoyance is a French term which combines clair, which means clear, and voyance, which means clear vision. Clairvoyance is the claimed ability to gain information about an object, person, location, or physical event through some perception that is considered extrasensory. Any person who is claimed to have such an ability is said accordingly to be a clairvoyant, that is, one who sees clearly. Now, the more specific term, remote viewing, comes from a system developed and run by the United States military, CIA, and Stanford Research Institute that used psychic ability as a means to retrieve non-local information. Now, remote viewing is the practice of gathering impressions about unseen and non-local targets using extrasensory perception, that is ESP, or seeing, quote-unquote, with the mind. And the actual term remote viewing was coined in the 1970s by Russell Targ and Hal Putoff while working as researchers at SRI, that is the Stanford Research Institute. So let's talk a little bit about how remote viewing works. How did Russell Targ and Hal Putoff put this together? Basically, a remote viewer is given a target in the form of something like coordinates, that is latitude and longitude, which the remote viewer will use to find the target and then give back information, often referred to in these circles as intelligence, about the target. The target can be an object, event, person, or location that is hidden visually meaning not visible nor directly perceivable in any way by any of the traditional senses of the body. And this is astounding, so listen closely. The target can be located from anywhere and anytime in the universe. Furthermore, this is truly a blind target because the remote viewer is given absolutely no additional information about the target. All they have to go by are those coordinates. So that gives you some idea of what remote viewing is, how these studies were conducted, how intelligence was gathered for CIA and other uh, intelligence services. But how does one do it? 
Well, let's hear from Joseph McMonagall, who is a superstar remote viewer who is involved at the, the research at SRI and is responsible for some of the most amazing, astonishing uh, result when it comes to remote viewing. Of remote viewing, he says, in my opinion, learning to remote view is more a combination of unlearning and learning. On the unlearning side, we find ourselves trying to forget all of the rules and directions we've inherited from our peer groups, schools, teachers, and yes, even our parents. Many of the things we were taught about reality have no basis in fact. So I look at one half of the problem as getting rid of the clutter in our minds and how things are supposed to be and replacing it with the things we eventually come to know. Part two is very similar to learning a language or learning to play a musical instrument, except that instead of French or German, it is the language of the mind. Instead of musical notes, it is the dance of mental perception. Again, that was a quote from Joseph McMonagall. Now, speaking of remote viewing superstars, Ingo Swan, who of course is one of the most psi-capable people the world has ever known, said regarding remote viewing, the biggest enemies are memory and imagination. Now, this is interesting, and it somewhat flies in the face of what many people assume to be intuitive when you think about this topic. Now, I am certainly not one of these superstars, but I have tried some psi work on my own and practiced it, and I found what Ingo Swan to be saying uh, is absolutely true. Again, even though it's counterintuitive, which just goes back to what Joseph McMonagall said in terms of what we have to unlearn. Uh, when it comes to finding a target or, or getting any kind of psychic information, uh, memory and imagination actually get in the way. That's why remote viewing sometimes is so effective, uh, according to some of these uh, star remote viewers, because they know nothing about the target. It truly is a blind target. But again, with any kind of psi work, when it tends to work, uh, you notice that the information comes in a way that's different, that feels different than memory and imagination. Um, again, this is somewhat counterintuitive to people who haven't tried it. But when it works, and you've done it a few times and seen it work, and compare it to the times that didn't work, you start noticing subtle differences in how the information arrives. Uh, it tends to not be dreamt up or sort of embellished from some memory or some imagination you had in the past. It just comes in as straight information, pop. It just drops in, um, and it's, it is quite different than the experience of memory or imagination. That isn't to say that it just drops in as complete information, three-dimensional, uh, containing all the data you would want. Sometimes the information comes in in bits and pieces, and it's much more subtle and sometimes symbolic. Uh, part of the process of becoming a better remote viewer involves uh, practicing that skill and improving it. Now, again, I can imagine right now all the skeptics, all the cynics going, come on, this sounds ridiculous. What does this have to do with science and the real world? And to those people, I just remind them that this is a program that ran not for one year, didn't get stretched to two years or three years or five. It ran for 20 years. It was a fully funded program funded by United States military intelligence, institutions like the CIA for 20 years in a row. Now you might think to yourself, 
and understandably, uh, isn't the military a strange organization to be doing psychic research? Don't these seem like strange bedfellows, remote viewing and military intelligence? Well, you'd be right. And historically, the reason this happened is because, don't forget, this was at the height of the Cold War. And over time, uh, US intelligence services began to suspect and have some evidence that the Soviet Union was using these very methods to gain information about US secrets. And in fact, part of the uh, mission for this remote viewing group was to find out whether the US could protect information. How much was uh, available to the other side? What could they actually learn through these processes? And interestingly, in terms of the answer to that question, what can you hide? What can you shield in terms of information, uh, intelligence that needs to be top secret? Well, the answer was nothing, nada, apparently nothing in space or time, period, is shieldable from uh, processes like remote viewing. Again, that's an astonishing finding. And this is the finding from the remote viewing group uh, run by Hal Putoff, Russell Targ, and those gentlemen uh, on behalf of CIA. Now, you might ask yourself, if this program ran for 20 years, if uh, the government concluded that this actually worked, how did they demonstrate this? How was this proven? How did they know that these the information produced about these targets by the remote viewers was actually accurate. Because remember, it's uh, hidden to the actual viewers themselves. Well, the way things work in intelligence services is you confirm through other sources. Uh, again, because sometimes lives are on the line, it's very important that you can trust your information. And so they would have other means of testing uh, these sources, uh, these results, and they would find time and time again for them to be remarkably accurate. And please understand, this is the only reason this program was renewed year after year after year, because there were plenty of people in the military, which again, historically, traditionally is a pretty conservative organization. There are plenty of people who wanted to see this canceled, who from the get-go thought it was ridiculous, almost an embarrassment for the military services. Uh, there were some that objected for religious means. Uh, that raises its head uh, in government circles more often than you might realize. Even Lou Elizondo has pointed to that. What's fascinating about this particular project, the remote viewing project, is that the results were tested and verified time and time again. That is why even though many wanted to have this program canceled, they couldn't. It was just too demonstrably, objectively effective time and time again. So let's talk about one of the successes. And here we'll, we'll talk about Joseph McMonagall. Again, he had many successes, uh, was one of the star remote viewers for the military. Uh, one time, I think the way it goes, uh, he was approached with certain coordinates. Again, he doesn't know anything about the coordinates. It could be anywhere. Um, I think the military had some sense that these coordinates corresponded to a place where something top secret was happening inside the Soviet Union, but they had no access to that at that point. Uh, so Joseph began to get a sense to practice the protocols, and he then drew out this strange crane-looking contraption, a really large crane. Uh, again, he would actually even include perspective uh, in the drawings he would make. You'd see a person standing next to the crane, so you knew how big the crane was in comparison. It was a very strange-looking contraption, 
And honestly, military intelligence didn't know what to do with it because it didn't correspond with any known hardware on the Soviet side. Much later, uh, this was actually confirmed as accurate intelligence. And photos were later published of this very crane-like contraption. And it's remarkably similar. You can actually go online and find examples of both McMonagall's drawings and the eventual photographs. And you'll be shocked and surprised uh, at how similar they are. Now, if you think McMonagall's uh, success when it came to finding targets hidden in, deep inside the Soviet Union in the middle of the Cold War, uh, that's just the beginning. You'll be amazed with what we have to share later. But first, let's talk about the process. How does remote viewing actually work? Paul H. Smith is another uh, star remote viewer who uh, worked for military intelligence for a long time, uh, on the same program. And he discussed uh, six different um, phases that the remote viewing process goes through, uh, through each remote viewing experiment. Uh, number one is a more gestalt uh, kind of phase. This is just gathering really general impressions. Okay, so imagine that they've been given coordinates. At this uh, first stage, all they're doing is gathering really general impressions, gestalt, right? Number two is sensory information, that is sensations. Uh, textures, temperature, tastes, sounds, that kind of thing. Now, again, what's fascinating here is that his actual bodily senses are not picking up any of this data, right? This is somehow being proce processed by his brain remotely, uh, but that's what stage two is about. Sensations, textures, temperature, tastes, sounds, that kind of thing. Stage three uh, comes down to dimensionality. Uh, and by that, I mean... How tall is the target? Wide, dense, hollow. And at this point, you might start sketching aspects um, of the target. And it's interesting, Paul Smith here has talked about sometimes um, the remote viewers would basically start doing a kind of automatic drawing at this point. Uh, you've heard about automatic writing, I'm guessing. Uh, that's where someone just feels like they're channeling some other source and they just start writing information they don't even understand. Well, Paul Smith says it's similar uh, with remote viewing, especially in this early uh, stage three here of the process. Uh, sometimes just automatic drawing would happen. Unconsciously, you make certain movements on the page with a pencil. You're not sure why. Then comes stage four. This is abstract terminology. Let's say if the target was the Eiffel Tower, for instance. Again, the, uh, the remote viewer doesn't know this. They don't know it's in France. They don't know it's a tourist attraction. They know nothing, right? They just have coordinates uh, as an example. So in this abstract terminology phase, the uh, remote viewer might start jotting down terms like tourism, monumental, ambiance, uh, that kind of thing. Number five is where they would extract embedded information. Uh, this is more uh, detail, things like camera, postcards, that sort of more micro level information. Again, this is in a case where it's, the target was, for instance, the Eiffel Tower. And then finally in stage six, uh, and this uh, Paul Smith uh, recalls uh, close encounters of the third kind where um, you know, they're making uh, shapes out of potato, mashed potato. This is similar. Here you're making a three-dimensional model. Uh, the remote viewer uh, does this, uses clay or something like that to kind of shape a three-dimensional model of what they're seeing of the target. And this hopefully frees up additional informa information because the kinesthetic involvement uh, can help to uh, trigger additional uh, rising of information.
Now, I mentioned we would get back to uh, another example of an amazing result that Joseph McMonagall came up with. And this one is so astonishing. It still blows my mind whenever I think about it. And there's still videos online you can find on YouTube and other sources where McMonagall is giving a presentation that includes photos. Let me set the scene. One day, he is given certain coordinates. Again, never knows where on earth that is. Uh, he starts getting impressions. And it's strange because um, he starts getting an impression of a pyramid-like structure. You know, definitely um, intelligently formed. This is not a natural rock structure, but it was pyramidal in shape. And so he actually assumed perhaps he was seeing something uh, in Egypt when he thought pyramids, right? What's fascinating is later on, he finds out that the target is not Earth at all. It's Mars. What's even more fascinating is that he can go backwards and forwards in time, even on that remote target on the planet Mars. Because at first he sees sort of destruction, um, senses that uh, a lost civilization is there. That's what he's seeing evidence of. So they ask him to go back in time and remote view the same coordinates. This time he sees an earlier stage in the civilization, and he actually sees beings uh, very tall beings, um, at least two, three times the height of human beings today. Um, and you can actually see in this presentation, he draws a picture of this Martian-like creature and a human being, and you can see it's definitely two, three times the height. Uh, what's fascinating is McMonagall goes on to say that these people are waiting, hoping, because a, uh, a team has been sent out to try and find a new planet because Mars has gone through some sort of atmospheric desolation. Uh, I think he talks about passing through the tail of a comet or something like that. And so the atmosphere has basically been stripped from the planet. And of course, what's fascinating about that is we have some evidence from elsewhere that this is actually what happened to Mars, that at one point Mars may have been a flourishing green planet full of life. Uh, and at some point the atmosphere was stripped and that's why it's the sort of desolate world it is today. Again, what's fascinating is from McMonagall's point of view, uh, this search team that went out looking for a new home actually found Earth. That is to say, he doesn't think there are Martians and Earthlings. He thinks we are the descendants of those Martians sent out to find a new home. Now, before we discuss some of the implications of this kind of information, which again is truly astonishing to the nth degree, let's talk a little bit more about Joseph McMonagall. How does someone develop this kind of talent? Well, uh, interesting when it comes to our whole point of convergence uh, aspect. First off, McMonagall talks about growing up in a really sort of poor and kind of dangerous area of Miami, I think it was. And he realizes later on, only looking back, that he kind of out of necessity developed these kind of survival skills, these intuitive survival skills on the streets just for his own personal safety. Again, didn't really think anything of it at the time, but he thinks the first seeds of his skills began then. And this makes sense, right? Even from an evolutionary point of view, from a mainstream science point of view, this is how these kind of traits are developed uh, by necessity. It's a survival skill. Um, the implication, of course, is that we all have some of these dormant skills. They're just latent skills that we haven't used very often. Now, again, speaking of the point of convergence, speaking about how these various aspects of high strangeness often occur together, overlap and whatnot. 
What you'll also find fascinating when you study Joseph McMonagall's story, and I'm currently reading one of his, his books uh, titled Mind Trek, he recounts having a near-death experience. When I read it, I was like, of course, this makes total sense. Once again, we have these overlapping uh, categories of high strangeness. Uh, he has your sort of typical, completely mind-blowing uh, near-death experience where he sees himself as an eternal being, uh, realizes everything that was so small and insignificant about the way he considered reality beforehand. He comes back a very changed man, uh, but it's not just that. It's not just that his perspective has changed. He reports even being able to read the mind of the nurses in the next room over from the military hospital he was recovering in. Now, of course, when he shared this perspective with the doctors nearby, he was given some strange glances. Um, perhaps they considered brain damage at that point. So he learned very quickly, especially in the military, which again is a very conservative organization uh, traditionally, to keep it on the down low. He would not discuss uh, his near-death experience, uh, nor talk about anything to do with psychic matters. So you can imagine his surprise when later on he was approached to be a part of this a project looking into remote viewing. Again, this project was known by a number of names, uh, Sunstreak, Grill Flame, and perhaps most famously, Stargate. Now, before we move on to discussing some of the implications of this and some of the overlap that we notice between phenomena like remote viewing and other things like near-death experiences, uh, UFO intelligence contact, and that kind of thing, Let's discuss a couple more items regarding this remote viewing program as it pertains to UFOs directly. One time, as the story goes, Pat Price, who is yet again another superstar remote viewer for the program, uh, came to Hal Putoff and said, hey, by the way, in my free time, I was kind of bored. Yes, this is the true story. So I decided to remote view um, whether or not there could be... Um, alien bases on the earth. And apparently he found four of them and he dutifully passed this on to Hal Putoff. And again, as part of their arrangement, uh, their contract with the military, this information was passed on to the military. And apparently, I don't know the full story, but there were some interesting overlaps with some other intelligence when it comes to uh, the data passed on from this, uh, from Pat Price's uh, off time experiments. And of course, Ingo Swan, uh, who was also involved in this program, on his own talked about um, moon bases actually uh, involving alien intelligence. Again, many people scoffed at this. To be honest, even I was uh, highly suspicious of this when I first heard about it. But apparently there have been some, uh, some data released by NASA uh, and other organizations that suggest um, some anomalies noticed on the moon could uh, conceivably uh, reference or be data related to uh, a moon base uh, of some sort of other intelligence. But make of that what you will. What I'm interested in is the implications of this, this notion that all information across time and space is always available, and that we as human beings have some sort of latent innate capacity to access this information. Again, this is astonishing uh, why is this not headline news? Again, that comes down to a lot of bias, prejudice in uh, mainstream science and the mainstream media. Uh, nevertheless, it is an astonishing result. Now, again, the implication here is that all information from, from all space, all time is always available, always has been, always will be. 
and even those terms has will are to some degree um byproducts of our language and the limitations of it because again the the implications of all of these things we've been talking about is that even the way that we walk through time in a linear fashion uh, that it's sort of a shared delusion that all humanity has right now but that's ultimately an illusion that this whether we want to call it the akashic records or some sort of cosmic database uh, it contains information regarding past present future according to the way we would see it anyway from every event has ever existed from any sentient being in the history of the cosmos. And again, when you think about uh, people's contact with non-human intelligence, with the others, uh, these others seem to be accessing these same skills, but just to a much heightened degree. So sometimes when people are taking on board a craft, uh, they're shown something like a life review that you have in a near-death experience where every event you've ever experienced is somehow uh, available to you now and available to them. Even more interestingly, whether it's a near-death experience or even sometimes a life review on one of these alien craft, um, people will also be able to experience how they made others feel. Every interaction they ever had, they, they can remember not only how they felt and what their actions were, but how the others were affected by their actions. All of this information, always available. So regarding the fascinating implications we've discussed on today's episode and the episodes previous to this, where does this lead us? Again, it tells us something fundamental about reality. It tells us something about the paradigm we have now is fundamentally wrong, insufficient, perhaps even headed in the completely wrong direction. Because of course, again, for the mainstream establishment, uh, scientific materialism rules, the idea that matter and energy our primary and something like consciousness is an artifact of those things. What the implications we've discussed today uh, suggest is that consciousness is actually the bedrock of reality from which everything else arises. Now let's bring it back to the title of this episode, Consciously Connected. Now this has a double meaning from my point of view. On the one hand, all of what we've been discussing in this episode uh, points to consciousness as the common link. It is the substrate that gives rise to everything else. We are consciously connected one to another, human to human, human to non-human, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not. And in some sense, our journey is in returning to that place of oneness, a kind of big bang of consciousness, if you will, where everything, everyone, everywhere becomes cognizant of the interconnectedness of all that is, realizing that to harm the one is to harm the all, and to benefit the one is to benefit the all. And that brings us to a close of this edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. I hope you've been challenged by what you've heard in terms of how you'll live your life. I know I have been. And as always, I hope you'll tune in again next week as we continue this fascinating journey. Until then, from deep in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian signing out.